This morning is going to be a different. It's not that we're not preaching the Word this morning. We absolutely are. It's, it's that we're going to do a little different approach. Instead, we're going to look at a topic, and we're going to see what the Bible says about that specific topic. And before we get into the topic, which will be, heads up, the church, um, let me just rewind to tell you a little bit about who we are in our story. If you're new, if you need an update, if you forgot, or maybe it's the first time you've heard it, over a year ago, in February 2017, uh, the church back in Simi, part of the Karis Fellowship of Churches, began praying um, that God would open doors for kind of a new step in ministry, something we've never done before. There was an increasing desire that we would either church plant or church revitalize. We didn't know where, we didn't know who, we didn't know how, but we were praying. We brought it to our elders there, we brought it to our staff there, and the, the, the constant call was, let's pray every day. And so we were praying every day, Lord, um, what is it that you want us to do? We had really three things that we were praying for. We were praying for where do you want us to go, Lord? That was number one. Where do you want us to go? Number two was who do you want to go out and do this? Um, who, we assumed that this would be a, a team and this wouldn't be something that an individual goes and does. So we're saying, who do you want, Lord? Raise them up, even stir in their hearts. And then third, we're praying, how do we do this? This is something we've never done before. Uh, we knew that God would be faithful to His Word and His Gospel, that He is faithful to answer prayers. And we'd seen Him be doing that in our church. And so we're praying, you know, Lord, continue building your church. Lord, wherever you would have it. And so, who, where, how, Lord, uh, you, you know now a lot of those questions are answered. Uh, because of the intervention of someone who actually happened to be here this morning, Mike Shera, uh, a pastor down in Grace Church of Orange, alerted us of a, a need up here in Altaloma. And because of Pastor Roy and him uh, getting us together, uh, and the team from Simi and a bunch of different other churches all coming together, we heard of the opportunity here. We were told that of the church here and the need here and Pastor Roy's retirement here. And so we thought, hey, maybe this is something we could do. Well, I don't know. We were praying. We had thought maybe a church plant in Ventura, this was 70 miles in the opposite direction. Uh, so we were just, uh, maybe, we just kept praying and thinking and talking about it. And more and more, the desire grew that maybe this is it. A lot of conversations between the people in Simi and the people in Orange and how we might do this together. A lot of talks with the elders here at Grace Fellowship and working things out and how it would all work. Now we're here. You know, fast forward, you know, it's more than a year later. Uh, the first time I heard about this church was in October, so it's not a year up to that, but the f over a year since we actually started praying. Here we are gathered I can say that no one left the church in Simi because they're disgruntled and wanted a different church. No one left the church in Orange because they hated it there and they wanted a new place. It was because we loved to see what God was doing there and we wanted it to continue in new places. Not doing anything innovative, slick, 
or th- anything like that, but to keep preaching and keep praying and keep shepherding and keep discipling and see if God would even allow this church to be healthy and grow and effective in the community. And so it was this vision of church work that thrilled us, church work that excites us, to be involved in a church where we can labor under the Word of God and under with the people of God for a new light to be shining brightly in an area just thrilled us. Personally, the church has been my most exciting adventure the last decade of my life plus. As when I was in college, just a little biography here, uh, my pastor uh, back in Simi, Jordan Baker, I remember he was a college pastor, and I sat around and with the college group with a bunch of other guys, and we would discuss uh, various topics of church life and theology, and I remember times that we would confess sins to one another, and pray for one another, and laugh and cry together, and it was the first time I experienced what it was like to be a part of a group of people who had committed themselves to each other in love and in truth and were committed to the work of the gospel uh, moving forward in that location. And it just it thrilled me. And at that point in my life, being a college student, I didn't think I wanted to go into pastoral ministry, but I do remember thinking, I want to be a part of a church. Wherever I end up, whatever job I go into, I need to be a part of a church. I need to belong there. I need to be known there. I need people to know me. And I need to... Give my life to those people. I want to bear burdens. I want to encourage. I want to be able to go through life with people. I want to see God's work. And so, uh, largely the influence of those men at that time in my life, I grew to love the church. Church to me is my life. It's my whole life orients around the church. It's it's the center. Um, My relationship with the Lord and in Christ's church, I want my life to be centered there in everything I do, every schedule I have, orients around how we can serve the church. It's what I want to raise my kids in. I want them to know that this is the church that we love and serve, and the church is where life happens and where we see God work. The church is where the Word of God is preached and where lives are transformed. I want the church to be the center of the way they think about life. They can't even conceive of life outside of the the body of believers. And so when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about something that's near and dear to my heart. It's one of my favorite subjects. I will say it's not my favorite subject, though. My favorite subject is the gospel. And so just to clarify, I love the church because I love the gospel. The gospel needs to be protected. Amen? There There are ways that we can go about ministry even in ways that we preach the gospel rightly, but if we go about the ministry of the church wrongly, we'll undercut the message of the gospel. And so if we want to preserve the gospel, that means we need to fight for the health of the church. I think of it in my mind like a a lighthouse. If you envision a lighthouse, the lighthouse has an intention to shine, right? The lighthouse needs to shine. If it's not shining, it's not doing its job. You know, ships will crash on the crags uh, if there's no light shining alerting them of the rocky shore, all right? So the lighthouse needs to shine. But imagine that lighthouse, even though you might say the main purpose is to shine, if the internal structure of that lighthouse, taking the battering of the waves year in, year out, begins to be compromised or begins to break down, it doesn't matter how clean your bulb is or how bright it shines if eventually that lighthouse goes tumbling into the sea. 
Here's the analogy. We're going to preach the gospel. And my desire is that my children and my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren can come to this church and the gospel will still be preached. And I want to see it go from generation to generation, which means we're not only concerned about keeping the light bulb pretty, but keeping the structure right. We have to keep the church healthy. And so it makes sense. This is the very beginning of kind of a a life together where all three churches are uniting as one. And so we need to really discuss what it means to be healthy as a church. Christ purchased the church with His own blood. He calls the church His bride. He is passionately committed to the church. And I read it this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And he calls it the pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, he's describing something that holds up the truth. The church isn't the truth, but it holds up the truth. And if the pillars go down, if the supports go down, if the foundations are bad, well, eventually what happens to the truth? It gets lost. And so I'm not only concerned about preaching the gospel for one generation. I want the generations in this church to know that there will be a clear gospel preached. Clear gospel preached. And so we need to know what a church is. We need to know what a church is. That's the topic of this morning. We need to know what a church is. And you, you think, oh, that's a, odd. Of course we know what a church is. We're all here, right? This is a church. Except for the fact that that question is often not answered rightly. Well, what is a church? And I've done a lot of reading on this. And I've even read some church planting books. And there's one particular book you're reading through that it was very clear that the author believed that a church was merely a crowd. And that all the things that it said that you need to do to get a church going was simply describing how to get a crowd together. Now you know, the church is not just a crowd. You can go to a football game and get a crowd, and that's not a church. You can go anywhere where there's a clump of people, and that's not necessarily a church. Well, what is a church? What is a church? So we're going to go through four essential elements of a church. Uh, These are what theologians through the ages have said, these are the marks of a true church. If you take these things away, there is no longer a church gathering, all right? So we're going to talk about what is the church? What does the Bible say a church is? How does Jesus describe the church? And so we're going to give you four essential elements. Now, in the interest of time, I might race. If you're a note taker, get your hand ready to write down because we're moving quick, all right? Here's the first essential element of a church. Here's number one. A church is a regular gathering of believers. So not just a crowd. Not just getting anyone in the room. We're not building the church if we're just trying to get a lot of people here. That's not how the church is built because that's not what a church is. It is a regular We do it week in, week out. Gathering of believers. The actual Greek word church is ekklesia, called out ones. It's an assembly of those called out from sin to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are then filled with the Spirit. And what the Spirit does to those people is He unites them. 
You read the epistles, the believers are united by the Spirit. If you want, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2 where we see the birth of the church. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up before a big assembly of people and he preaches the gospel that Christ died for sinners and he arose on the third day proclaiming forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes. He speaks this message to a group of Jews who many of them, if not most of them, were present or even guilty of wanting Jesus to be crucified not long previous to this. He stands up before them. He preaches uh, the dying and rising Jesus Christ, offering now forgiveness. And then he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you, I just envisioned that finger pointing out there when he says that, you crucified. And the Jews hearing this, it says in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now here's the moment the church comes into existence. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you look down at verse 41. So those who received His Word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were hearing the Gospel. They responded in repentance. They expressed their repentance in baptism. And then look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the Word of God right there. To the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. This is describing an intimate relationship that the church now has with each other. And so upon their faith, they are brought to a community by the Spirit in the name of Christ. In this regular community, it says again and again, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. This is describing a, a church family that is regularly gathering, regularly devoting themselves to fellowship, regularly devoting themselves to prayers. You'll see in chapter 4, verse 32, that these people are sharing, they're even selling their possessions to give to those who are in need. And so, friends, the church isn't a service. The church isn't a building. The church isn't a crowd. We start with this reality, and there's more to be said about this as I'm just moving quick, that the church is a gathering of saved people who are believing the gospel, demonstrating repentance in the way they are baptized. You want to see this even more clear how Jesus starts building his church? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter writes this, as you come to him, talking about Believers coming to Jesus, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. You guys see what he's saying? He's saying this. Here's Jesus. As you come to Him, imagine believers all coming to Jesus Christ from various backgrounds and various stories that they have. They're all coming to Jesus Christ, but who's at the middle? It's Jesus and so as various people, no matter how different they are, as they come to Jesus, who else are they coming closer to? Well, one another. 
Because they're all being built into a spiritual house, like bricks being laid. All of them are intertwined together, dependent on each other, growing together. Here's an implication. If we are genuinely coming closer to Jesus, we will be genuinely coming closer to each other. And so one of the marks of a church, one of the very essential aspects of a church is a gathering church. It is part of the new nature. It is part of those who are born again, what the Spirit does. It's part of what God does in our lives. He unites us. There's no... such thing in the New Testament as a Christian who has no church, as a Christian who detaches himself or herself from the church. It just doesn't exist. Like bees, it is their nature to get into that hive. Like ants, it is their nature to travel in lines. Christians, it is their nature to gather. It is not that we evaluate all the good things that are offered toward us. A Bible reading is good. A men's retreat might be good. Or a women's retreat might be good. Uh, journaling might be helpful. Uh, doing these various spiritual disciplines are good. And in addition to that, church is also good. It's, it's not that. It's part of that, but it's not merely that. It is now being born again and clinging to Christ is my only hope and being filled with the Spirit and being given a new nature, I can't help but desire the fellowship of the people that God has united me to. And so your gathering is an expression of your new life in Christ. It's the essence of a church to gather, which is why, again, in Hebrews 10.23, it is commanded. Let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so a church gathers. A church is a gathering of believers. It's not just a gathering of anybody's. It's a gathering of those who have repented, believing the gospel, and trusting Jesus Christ. Number two, a church, this is another essence. Without this, this is no longer a church, okay? These are like the bare bones minimum. This is what makes a church a church. So it must gather. It must be a believer's gathering. Secondly, a church devotes itself to God's Word. A church devotes itself to God's Word. Theologians throughout the centuries have called what they, or have defined what they call true churches and false churches, okay? And as they figure out what's the difference between the two. We know that Satan likes to sow weeds in the field of wheat. We know that he will even sometimes imitate true and genuine faith. Well, here, what theologians have concluded, and I think it's obvious throughout Scripture, that a true church fundamentally that differentiates itself from every other false church, every other cult, every other false religion is devoted to the authority of the Word of God. And if we remove that authority and we remove the Gospel message that the Bible proclaims, we no longer are a true church. Now that's serious business. What I'm saying, and I mean for it to be very serious, because what I intend to say is that if this book ever gets removed from the pulpit and replaced by the opinions of men, then we are no longer operating under the headship of Jesus Christ because we've abandoned His Word and now we're operating under our own whims and opinions and we're no longer functioning as His church. We are in disobedience if this ever happens. And so if I ever preach a false gospel or if I ever neglect God's Word, 
I would expect you to come talk to me about that because that's a serious matter. A church is devoted to Scripture. This is very clear, and again in Acts, when the church is gathered together, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jesus commissioned those apostles, even appointed those apostles to speak by the Spirit, His Word, to the church so that it would be built up. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, believers are born again through the living and abiding Word of God. If you want to see conversions, open up your Bible, and we should make sure we're preaching that, right? People are saved by the Word of God. First, or sorry, James chapter 1, verse 18, of His own will, He brought us, us forth, how? By the word of truth. Uh, the Bible is very clear that there is nothing more powerful than God's word. Now, this is obvious from the very beginning of the Bible. How did the universe come into existence? And God said. And God said said. And God said, go to Genesis chapter 1. Mark every time, every time that the writer says, and God said. And then as you think about this, when you open your Bible and you read it for yourself, you can remind yourself that the same God who spoke the universe into existence now speaks to you as you read and study and understand exactly what that means for you, He is speaking the most powerful truth. You know, if there's ever any idea that we need more octane in a, in a church service, we need a little more power, a little more uh, buzz, and maybe we're going to look for some fad or some trend, let me just stop that in, our, in, in the tracks and say, we have everything we need. We have all that we need uh, it says that the Word upholds the universe by the Word of His power. I mean, in Psalm 29, you read Psalm 29, and every last detail of creation is being guided by the Word of God. Trees fall in the forest. Why? Because God, by His Word, decrees those things. I mean, God's Word is, is the most powerful permeating reality. And when we open up Scripture, we are reading the very Word of God. And when it's being preached, we are sitting under the most powerful reality that could ever exist. Because the Word of God is an extension of His very self. And as you, He speaks to us, He changes us. He informs us. He saves us. He sanctifies us. Which is why, just following the logic, if of course the Word of God is the most powerful thing there is, that Paul would say to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ His Son and His coming kingdom, preach the Word. In other words, there's all kinds of things that are going wrong in the world. There's all kinds of things you can do from the pulpit. And here's the one thing I want to make sure you never forget. In fact, I'm calling God to the stand. I'm calling His Son to the stand. I'm asking you to think about the coming kingdom. And i got a charge for you, Timothy. Preach the Word. In season. Out of season. That means all the time. Preach Scripture. And that's what a church is. So we preach it. We will teach it. Lord willing, in our counseling among one another, we will speak it to one another. It will be central. It will be prioritized. We will submit under its authority as we submit to Christ. So that is another essence of the church. We remove that. We are no longer a church. Third, a church must 
administer the ordinances. I don't know what you think about that one. That might be a little more foreign. The ordinances, just to simplify, are the two practices Jesus gave to the church to give the church its shape and to actually it does a lot of good for the church to understand what the ordinances are. Uh, the ordinances are baptism and communion. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, before sending his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. So these disciples who have followed him are now sent to make more disciples. He says the way you're going to do this is by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Baptism is Jesus' method of identifying his people. Baptism is the method that God has given to the church to identify who are the people of God. This is why Peter, when those people wanted to get saved and say, hey, what do I need to do? After he preached the gospel, he said, repent and be baptized. In other words, repent of your sin and then follow Jesus, his directions to say, yeah, I want in. I, I, I want to be counted as one of the members of your church. I, I want show, I, I'm willing to say it publicly. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus makes this principle. He says, uh, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus' point, point is, there's no secret disciples. Jesus' intention is for people to say, I'm with Christ. His intention is for every believer in this room not to just do it privately as if I'm just secluded from any body or I don't really want anyone to know my belief in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I want you to make sure you acknowledge your faith in me before men. And the mechanism he has put in the church for that purpose is baptism. I find it really interesting. If you're still in Acts, you can turn over to Acts chapter 8 where, where Philip is speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch. He's preaching the gospel to this guy. In a providential way, Philip ran into him and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 28 says, and Philip goes over there and joins him and asks, hey, do you even understand what you're reading? And he goes, I don't know. He doesn't really understand it. It happens to be reading in a passage of Isaiah that's so clearly about Jesus' death for sinners. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And listen to this. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Okay, so what did Philip tell him? The good news about Jesus and what Jesus has done. That Though we were sinners, Christ came, died in our place, rose from the dead, offers total forgiveness of sins to anyone who trusts him. But then look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, he, "Say, hey, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? So here's what we know. When Philip explained the gospel, it was enough so that the eunuch hearing that knew that he needed to get baptized. So somehow included in the gospel presentation that Philip gave to the eunuch was also this call express your faith and your, your commitment in baptism. 
That's not the only thing that Jesus has given us to mark out the church. First, it's baptism. That's like the welcome to the family uh, mark that Jesus has given. But there's also the communion. That's the second ordinances, that the Lord's Supper, uh, the Eucharist, some have called it in the past. This is when Jesus in Luke 22:18 says, do this in remembrance of me. There's the bread, there's the cup, uh, reminding us of the finished work of Christ. We gather on the table. We take this together, remembering Christ. And this is given to us for the church to participate in to again remind us of the Gospel, remind us of our sins being forgiven, but also to remind us of our unity with other believers in the church. If you want to see this close up, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Uh, This is Paul writing to the Corinthians who didn't really take communion well, so he had to correct them. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is that not participation in the body of Christ? So he's telling them this body and this, or the cup and the, the bread, aren't these symbols of our unification with Jesus and our cleansing by His blood and participation in His body? And then look at verse 17 if you're following along. It says, because there is one bread, follow this, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Here's what this means. When we take communion, when we take communion, we take that cup and we take that bread and we share in the fellowship of Christ, we're not only reminding ourselves of the gospel, we are doing that. We're not only reminding ourselves of his finished work, we're doing that, but we're also looking around the room and we're reminding ourselves that we are one with those brothers and sisters. In baptism, the one becomes part of the many. And in communion, the many are made one. And this is really what a church is shaped by as we understand the ordinances as baptism shows, well, who is willing to confess Jesus as Lord? Well, who's been baptized? And who's making this commitment each time and reminding themselves of Christ's work each time they gather on the table? Well, who's taking communion? And so really practical and technical way of thinking about this, if you ever want to know who your church family is, Ask yourself this, who's been baptized and who's taking communion? Who's taking communion with you? I mean, that's your church family. And this is what God has given to the church to help us identify our body and unite us together and bring us together. And so there is no church without the ordinances. And we move those away, we are not in obedience. And so here's the last thing. I'm already over time, so I'm racing. I'm racing. Here's the last thing. Fourth, a church must practice biblical church discipline. So we started with a church's regular gathering of believers. It listens to God's Word. It does the ordinances. And last we end with this idea of biblical church discipline. Now let me just say, some of you maybe have a bad history with this and an a idea in your mind of what church discipline is that just totally turns you off to it. You have a, a wrong view of discipline maybe, or maybe your view has been colored by a bad experience and you just say, no, church discipline stinks. And I would agree that any form of abuse in church discipline is repugnant to Jesus and has no place in the church when leaders abuse their authority and lord it over the members of the body. It is gross and is disobedient and should never be practiced. However, 
The abuse of something doesn't negate that there are right uses of that same thing. In the same way, if there's a marriage, that there's an abusive husband, that doesn't mean marriage is bad, okay? And so church discipline in the past by some groups maybe has been bad and wrong and maybe has been abused, but we have to remember that Jesus, out of love for His church, instituted this. And I want you to see it in Matthew 18. And I think if we understand it, it'll actually be something that's beautiful to us. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus mentions the church for only the second time in the New Testament. First in Matthew 16. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus is giving directions for how to deal with sinning believers. And he says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let, it be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's stop there. Church discipline is normally broken up into two ideas. One is formative church discipline, and one is corrective church discipline. Formative church discipline is when you see me sinning, and you come up to me and you say, Eric, I heard you speak harshly to your wife. Can you just help me understand that? And I go, oh, yeah, I have no excuse for that. I'm, I'm sorry, and you're right. I'm going to go ask for forgiveness. That's church discipline on a very normal scale. In fact, 99% of church discipline is really not a big deal. It's when believers out of love for each other are willing to talk to each other about hard things. It's gentle. It's, it's uh, tender. It's when a mature believer is, when, when we really understand this, a mature believer is willing to say, hey, please come talk to me. If there's anything I'm sinning in a way that I can't see, I, I want you to come tell me so that I can be restored. I had a friend in seminary who was on a mission to, to kill the idea or the words, the phrase church discipline because of the baggage, and, and he wanted to call it church restoration. And I'm okay with that. I think old traditions are going to die hard, and we're probably going to keep calling it church discipline. But, but the whole idea is that there would be restoration and renewal of relationship, where we all say, hey, if I'm going anywhere, come get me, please. Now, if that happens, and someone's in sin, and we go talk to them in a gentle way, then Jesus says, you got to up the ante a little bit. And what happens next is you go get someone else, and again, you approach them, a friend or two, you say, hey, here's what we see in your life, and, and we would love for you to change direction, but it looks like in our evaluation, this is in a violation of Scripture. And Lord willing, even at that point, they repent. They say, yeah, you're right. They're restored. Done and done. But for those people who want to hold their sin so tightly that even when loving brothers and sisters approach them about it, they don't want to let it go. And so they're willing to hold so tightly. They say, no, I'm not turning. I'm not letting go. The last plea is to tell the entire church and even in that moment, our hope and our greatest desire, even with tears, would be to say to that sinning brother or sister, say, please 
Give up the sin. We're all praying for you. We all will help you. Give it up. We beg you. And if they won't, Jesus says, well, you have to treat them like they're an unbeliever. Why? Because that's what their life is demonstrating. That's what their life is demonstrating. So Jesus gives this direction because he really cares about the purity of his church. He really cares that we live holy lives. And so theologians have said, if church discipline leaves the church, Jesus goes with it. In other words, it's that important. And that means we commit to each other to say, we are committing to follow Jesus together. We are committed to this. And we are committed to open our lives up. We will say that our Christianity is very personal, but it is not private. I give you full range to talk to me about things you see in my life. And this is what the church does with one another. As we commit to one another, we say, here we are. Let's commit to each other in love and care and shepherd and discipleship. And this is what makes us distinct from the world. Because the world will think, oh no, people are going to come talk to me about my issues, and they'll run and hide. They don't want to be a part of that. In fact, some people think, hey, you really do church discipline, you're going to kill the church. I think we're going to purify the church. I think we're going to make the church healthy. And I think we're going to be able to unite around this idea that Christ is all. His glory is all. And my purity and our purity as a church body means so much because if we want to live for His glory, we've got to live a healthy church life together. So friends, Jesus is building His church. And these four realities are just the result of searching the Scriptures, staring at them hard, and asking Jesus, hey, what does your word say about the church? And this is what, this is what it is. So we're not just a crowd just gathering to hear a message. We are a group of believers regularly gathering to hear the Gospel preached from Scripture who baptize and take communion and we help each other in our walk with Christ in formative discipline. That's through just normal, casual conversations. And when there's extreme cases, sometimes corrective forms of discipline. So we will not toss aside Scripture and do whatever we think is best. We will follow this blueprint, what Jesus has laid out for us in His Word. We're going to pray. We're going to stand up, greet a little bit, and then we're going to get back to the next part. Let's pray. So Jesus, we love you. We love your church. We thank you for it. We thank you that you're building it. We pray that we would never look to any other source for power or for strength than to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. <laughs>